Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, the book of Revelation, the conclusion to chapter one. We left off last week uh, trying to decode the symbolism of that two-edged sword that came from the mouth of the divine being that was speaking to John. And we're going to get to that. But there are a couple of other items we need to address first. So let's reread a short section of chapter 1 of Revelation. Turn to chapter 1, verse 16. That's page 1534 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 16, page 1534 in a complete Jewish Bible. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand upon me, and he said, Don't be afraid, I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Sheol. So write down what you see, both what's now, what will happen afterwards, here is the secret meaning of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold menorahs. The seven stars are the angels of the seven messianic communities. The seven menorahs are the seven messianic communities. <clears throat> when, when John saw the vision of this divine being, he fell on his face as if dead, we are told. Then the unidentified being placed his right hand upon the motionless, stricken John and said, don't be afraid. Was John perhaps only awestruck with what he saw? Clearly not. He was petrified. That's why the divine being said to him, don't be afraid. Now one of the reasons John was afraid is because although he knew he was dealing with divinity, some puzzling form of the God of Israel, he didn't know exactly who he was dealing with. Why the mention of the detail that this is the being's right hand that was placed upon him because this was not a warm and fuzzy encounter. Biblically and historically the right hand's always the hand of power and authority. It's also the hand of favor. So since John was commanded and reassured to not be afraid and indeed the, the being exuded divine authority, then it's logical from the culture of his day for John to tell his readers it was the right hand that touched him. Now in addition to the divine being telling John not to be afraid, he also said, 
I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. Now Christians look at this verse and say, well, obviously this being is Christ. Once again, we see John's words conflating standard Jewish imagery of God the Father, the first and the last, with standard believers' imagery of God the Son. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I remind you that what is happening is not, that this is not John editorializing in his own words what he saw. It's John recording what this being said to him. Where he, whether he clearly understood what he heard or not. See, here's where this gets sticky. Nowhere does Yeshua call himself the first and the last in the gospel accounts. At the same time, God the Father certainly did not die and then come alive again, did he? Yet if we look at Christian articles and commentaries, it is usual to find them say that Christ is the first and the last. But guess what they use as their biblical proof for it? This statement right here in Revelation. That's the only one there is. This mysterious being says he is the first and the last. But he doesn't give us his name. It's only Christian doctrine that says, oh, this is Christ. The being doesn't say so. There's no words to that effect. And since Christian doctrine says this is Christ, well, then the description of first and last must apply to him. It's a circular argument. The reality is that at this point, in this chapter 1, based on the first and the last description, we could say that this is the Father speaking just as easily that we could say that the died and alive again description says this is Yeshua. Now obviously, this divine person speaking to John defies conventional theological characterization as understood in his era and in ours. The point's this. We have forever attempted to put the form, nature, and substance of God into a nice, neat box. That box is usually labeled the Trinity, and then rather rigid descriptions and functions of each person are defined. Any disagreement is met with the charge of heresy. There is no denying the multiple attributes of God, sometimes called persons, that the Bible itself identifies clearly as God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. However, the Old Testament also adds other attributes of God called the Shekinah and the Angel of the, of the Lord. Yet just how these attributes mesh together and, and how precisely they function and what form or forms they appear in is not so cut and dried in the Holy Scriptures. Yes, 
It is biblically explicit that God the Father is preeminent. It is equally explicit that God the Son, Jesus Christ, saves sinners. And that the Holy Spirit empowers believers with new natures. But beyond that, the functions and the forms of each are not exhaustively defined. And they seem to have rather elastic boundaries. For instance, I've shown you in previous lessons that Zechariah 14 actually turns on its head the nearly universal doctrine that when Christ returns, he will step foot on the Mount of Olives and then it splits. But the original Hebrew of the Bible says unequivocally that Yehovah, God the Father, is coming and he will step foot on the Mount of Olives and it will split in two. John seems to agree with Zechariah by identifying God the Father as the one who is, was, and is coming. And now we see this divine being in John's vision identify himself in non-standard terms that seem to mix the long-standing attributes of God the Father with the unmistakable attributes of God the Son. How are we going to decipher this? Well, first, I think it's unwise to simply apply a tidy solution in order to not have to deal with what is clearly an untidy problem. Rather, we should take these unconventional descriptions of unnamed divine persons with an open mind as a mystery, knowing that in one form or another, this is the God of Israel. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our real challenge is that as modern humans, including believers, we just don't like lingering questions about God. So the quickest solution is to decide that one of the Trinity must be assigned to this divine being of John's vision because there's no other choice. New Testament Christianity especially insists this can only be Christ. I'm not even saying it isn't. I'm saying something is very different about this being because his description is unlike anything we've read to this point in the Bible. Therefore we need to address this with humility and not read predisposed doctrines back into it and hold whatever our opinions of it might be pretty lightly. Therefore, I prefer at this point in Revelation to refer to this unnamed divine being as God, meaning the Godhead, and just leave it there for now. For now. Now, verse 19 was a most important bit of information to John. And it ought to be a caution for us. God tells John that this vision 
is both for now and for the future. Yet which part of it is for now? Meaning John's day. Which part of it is for the future? How much into the future the future part might be? That's left unanswered. So before we deal with the last verse of chapter 1, let's return to the issue of the double-edged sword that comes from the mouth of God. Last week I told you that while the symbolic imagery of a sword wasn't uncommon in the Old Testament or the New, John is the first to make mention of a sword that is double-edged. Therefore, the characteristic of this particular sword as having two cutting edges has meaning. The consensus of Christianity is that John is thinking of Paul's allegorical use of the sword as being the word of God. And Christianity says the word is the teachings of Christ and therefore Paul must be speaking about the New Testament. However, a New Testament didn't exist in Paul's day. It wouldn't for another 150 years. It's also questionable that John would directly borrow from Paul. And besides, adding the modifier of a double edge makes Paul's sword image, uh, sword image and John's sword image different. As I contemplated this dilemma, I ran across two very early church fathers who may have the more probable answer to what John saw and what it meant since they lived at a time not very far removed from John. The first is Victorinus of Petovium, also called Patau and uh, uh, Potovio. He lived in the 200s AD. He says this in his commentary on the Apocalypse. He says, the two-edged sword is the law and the gospel. The phrase, a sharp two-edged sword issued from his mouth, shows that it is he himself who earlier gave to the whole world knowledge of the law through Moses, but now gives the blessings of the gospel. And since by the same word every human, race, every human of the race will be judged, whether of the Old or the New Testament, he is called a sword, that he might show the apostles that he was announcing judgment. He said, I have not come to send peace, but a sword. Another early church father, Jerome, who wrote about a hundred years after Victorinus, said this, the saints have the two-edged sword of the letter and the spirit. We read it in the Apocalypse of John, which, by the way, is read in the churches and is accepted, for it is not held among the Apocrypha, but it is included in the canonical writings, in other words, in the Bible. As I was saying, it is written there of the Lord Savior, out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. The Lord therefore gives the sword from his mouth to his disciples. It is a two-edged sword, namely the word of his teachings. It is a two-edged sword historically and allegorically, the letter and the spirit. So, essentially, two of the earliest church fathers who lived before the Old Testament was pushed aside and marginalized, said that the two-edged sword represents what we today tend to call the Old and New Testaments. To use their words, the law or the letter and the gospel or the spirit. 
Now I suspect that because they interpreted John's words without the bent against the Old Testament that developed later on over the centuries within the church, they have better captured the essence of what John saw and what he meant by that double-edged sword than what modern commentators typically claim. So, the symbolism of the two-edged sword means that judgment is coming and the standard that all will be tested against will be the Old Testament law together with the gospel of Christ. Now the last verse of chapter 1 directly relates to the subject matter of chapters 2 and 3. The letters to the seven believing congregations of Asia. Back in verse 16, God is said to be holding seven stars. Now, in verse 20, God explains that the seven stars symbolize seven heavenly angels. Now, stars are standard Old Testament imagery for symbolizing angels. This wasn't hard for John to recognize. But what is a bit more difficult for modern believers is that it is said that these seven angels are each one associated to one of the seven Asian churches. Western Christianity generally has a harder time with this than, than some of the other branches of Christianity. Because the more evangelical denominations tend to emphasize the ministry of Christ and the Holy Spirit and de-emphasize the ministry of angels. Thus it's common in Revelation commentaries to say these are not heavenly angels at all. Rather they are messengers. Simply human messengers. I deny that these are human messengers. Clearly the words in their context make them angels. Stars do not signify human messengers in God's word. So clearly, there is some type of angel that is dedicated to each of these churches. Does that apply to all believers' congregations? This is the only reference I have found to angels dedicated to believing congregations, and it is only to these particular seven. So, your guess is as good as mine. And finally we see that the seven menorahs in the vision, typically but wrongly, characterized in English translations as lampstands, that they symbolize the seven congregations. Well, now that we have completed chapter one of Revelation, before we delve into the letters to the seven Asian congregations beginning in chapter two, we're going to go off schedule to discuss some things that I think are important for students of the Bible, for disciples of Christ, to know. So that perhaps our minds will be a little more open and ready to receive what God has for us, not just in the book of Revelation, but also in, in the entire Bible. While we are all usually unaware of it, we all live in our own religious and cultural bubbles. Others might call this our personal worldview. And these bubbles are often opaque. And so we aren't always 
conscious, or maybe we're just vaguely conscious, of what exists outside of our bubbles. For instance, this concerns the Christian faith. European and American Christians usually believe that whatever we know of Christianity is generally shared by all who would call themselves Christians. This hugely broad type of Christianity shared by Europeans and Americans is today known as Western Christianity because there, there are other types in other parts of the world. Because time has a way of making us forget our past. It surprises Western non-Catholics to learn that the main branch of Western Christianity called Protestantism owes its existence and probably at least 90% of its holidays, sacraments, customs, doctrines to Catholicism from whence it came. Until around 1000 AD, the Catholic Church represented and controlled the bulk of the known world's Christianity. But the Eastern Orthodox Church split off from it in what was called the Great Schism. Now what remained of the still immense Catholic Church as controlled by the Pope remained largely intact until the, uh, until the early 1500s when Martin Luther shook things up and he began his protest movement that eventually led to the protestant, the protestant reformation that led to the protestant branch of the western church however in the five centuries that had passed since the great schism by the time of Luther many sub-branches of the eastern orthodox church had already come into existence and of course since the creation of the protestant branch with Luther as its founder a few thousand sub-branches of Protestantism have sprung from it. Now most Western Christians don't know much of anything about any denomination beyond their own, let alone anything about the workings of the Eastern Orthodox churches or their doctrines and beliefs. Even further, further removed from our awareness are the many independent and lesser known Christian branches such as those as the Chaldean, the Coptic, the Ethiopian whose Bibles contain some books the Western branch doesn't have and vice versa. I'm going to give you a concrete example of this a little later on in this lesson. Now, see from our Christian, Western Christian perspective these strange and remote church branches might call themselves our Christian brothers and sisters. And perhaps we accept that association till we find out just how different some of their doctrines are from ours. There's sometimes divergent views about God and Christ and the Holy Spirit, how they worship so much more then we have doubts about their faith or whether they can even be rightfully called Christian. But what is perhaps at least as troubling is that part of the makeup of these bubbles we all inhabit 
particularly the part that defines our faith, has also led to most believers being unaware of the actual beginnings of our faith as it's presented in the Old Testament and then later on in the Gospel accounts. A Jewish faith on account of one very special Jew, Yeshua. And within the backdrop of the Jewish religion as it existed in the first century AD. It is within that context and mindset that John writes and his visions from God are tailored. It's not an easy context to, to access or, or understand for Gentile believers of all eras, past or present. And the farther in time we get from those amazing days of the New Testament authors, the challenge becomes all the greater. Yet without interpreting God's word in the proper context, then the door opens wide to a nearly infinite variety of interpretations and doctrines. Now common sense says that since those many interpretations and doctrines vary so greatly, they can't all be right. How do we discover the truth? I'm asking today <laughs> that we begin by bravely climbing out of our familiar and comfortable bubbles where we live believing, confident, assured that inside our own bubbles resides the truth or at least all the truth that we want. Inside our bubbles is right. Outside of them is wrong. Inside our bubbles are assumptions and stereotypes we hardly know are there because we've lived with them for such a long time. And so they go safely untested and unchallenged. Now, this is not to say that everything we think to be true isn't, or that anyone is capable of knowing all things, nor in this case is it necessary to know about all the many branches of Christianity in order for us to have a firm and proper faith. Nevertheless, just as I think you have gained from learning about the Torah and the Old Testament, and that they are anything but a threat to our faith in the salvation that Christ offers, in fact, the Old Testament makes us appreciate what he did for us and why all the more. So now I want to show you that perhaps there are some wonderful faith-strengthening truths that reside just outside these bubbles that we have inhabited for so long. Now I suspect you are already beginning to realize the vast complexities of the book of Revelation after we've only done one chapter. Some of it's because it was written within the construct of the ancient Jewish faith, mindset, and culture of the first century AD, and yet it is handed down to us in Greek manuscripts 
Then it's translated into English, which complicates the issue of communicating Jewish thought. Therefore, we're going to discuss some underlying elements of Revelation that are necessarily based on Jewish thought and culture. And so can easily be and have been overlooked and misconstrued. Hopefully by addressing several of these in detail, one by one at various points of our, of our study, by the time we've completed Revelation, we'll have not just a greater understanding of this book, but of the New Testament in general. So today, we're going to pause to discuss the critical passage in Daniel 7 that is alluded to by John in Revelation 1.7 and 1.13 which speaks about the one like a son of man coming in the clouds. What does Daniel mean by son of man? What did son of man mean to Jews in Christ's era? And most importantly, since Yeshua regularly used Son of Man as a, almost a favored title for himself. What did he mean by it? Now if you studied the book of Daniel with us, then you've already been familiarized with the issue. If not, then this will be entirely new to you. Either way, we're going to try to peel this onion back one more layer. Now we're not going to repeat everything I spoke in Daniel week 19 on this topic. So I recommend that you get that lesson and go over it. I'll review some of it, but we'll also add some new information. Before I go there, however, let me briefly deal with the title, Son of God. The most prevalent Christian doctrines of our day say that the title, Son of God, refers to Christ's divine nature, while the title, Son of Man, refers to his humanness. Sounds nice. But that's clearly not what the scriptures say or mean. In Old Testament times, it was believed and the scriptures say that the Lord essentially adopted each Israelite king as his own son. Now, of course, this is mostly, mostly from a, a spiritual viewpoint, but it's still in a very real way nonetheless we get a straightforward example of this adoption as God spoke to David about the issue of David not being allowed to construct a temple for the Lord but that his son Solomon would 1 Chronicles 28.6 Moreover, God said to me, Shlomo your son will build my house and courtyards for I have chosen him to be a son to me I will be a father to him so the idea of a king of Israel being God's adopted son, a son of God, was at this point in history merely establishing an unusually close bond between the earthly, entirely human, ruling king of Israel and God Almighty. This king is not divine. He is not God. But he is raised up by God to rule over his people 
and to give special attention and wisdom and protection. This adoptive father-son relationship between the God of Israel and an Israelite king was primarily aimed at the kings who came from the authorized line of kings, the line of David. Now I want to give you an example of how this knowledge changes our perspective in reading the New Testament as we see it from the Jewish worldview in which it was written. The opening words of Mark's Gospel are the beginning of the good news of Yeshua, the Messiah, the Son of God. The term the Son of God is meant communicate that Yeshua is that long-awaited Davidic king. It was not meant to refer to Yeshua's divine nature at that point. Now that's not to say that Mark didn't think Yeshua was divine. It's only that the term Son of God coupled with the term Mashiach, Messiah, had a long-established, very well-understood and culturally specific meaning to the Jewish people. It spoke of the Jews' breathless expectation for not just any Hebrew who might be their king, but of a Davidic king to once again appear. So naturally, these culturally familiar terms are what Mark uses to convey to his Jewish readers that Yeshua of Nazareth is not only the anointed one, the Mashiach, but as the Son of God, he is from the line of David. Thus, as counterintuitive as it seems to Gentile minds, Son of God actually refers to the human nature of Yeshua, not to his divine nature. With that, let's now deal directly about the one like a son of man, as described in Daniel's vision of uh, Daniel chapter 7. In verse 13, Daniel speaks of two distinct divine figures. The ancient one and the one like a son of man. It must be understood that the original Aramaic um, that this was written in, Daniel, most of Daniel was written in Aramaic, not Hebrew, says Barinash, which correlates directly to the Hebrew B'nai Adam, both of these phrases simply meaning human being. That's straightforward. Human being. That is, son of man, in the Aramaic and the Hebrew way of of saying it, simply means human being. They didn't have the word human being. They used son of man. And those terms mean absolutely nothing more nor less than that. So when in Daniel's vision he sees one like a son of man coming on the clouds from heaven, 
And then in verse 14 says that the Ancient One, God the Father, is giving Him rulership and glory and a kingdom over all the inhabitants of the earth. Daniel sees a human being coming on the clouds. One like a human being coming on the clouds. Yet Daniel knows it can't be a human being. So he writes, one like a son of man. One like a human being. Okay. So Daniel was given a divine prophetic vision that introduced a new and confusing element of the term son of man. Daniel had received a vision of the future divine human Messiah, but he didn't realize it. A new theological concept was born here in Daniel, in Israelite religious understanding. The theological concept of a human appearing deity who is given the title of the Son of Man, who is directly associated with Yehovah, the God of Israel. Whole new theological thought was developed. Such a concept would not have raised so much as an eyebrow among pagan Gentiles. <laughs> because all Gentiles saw their gods and goddesses as human appearing deities. But the Israelites had spent centuries being punished in the most terrible ways by God the Father, the God of Israel, for harboring those kinds of thoughts because invariably they would manifest themselves in some kind of idolatry. This was a most difficult concept for Daniel to digest at this point and we're told he walked away from this vision sickly pale. Now as modern believers, we have a leg up on Daniel. Around 600 years after Daniel, his puzzling vision began to come into focus. Daniel provided several attributes that would help to identify this very special son of man, this very special human being. Those attributes are, he is human, but in some inexplicable way, he's also divine. He will come in clouds. He will occupy a throne in heaven, right next to Jehovah, the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days delegates dominion over the entire planet, over everyone, to this unique Son of Man. These attributes that we find of the Son of Man concept in Daniel 7 we find in Yeshua of Nazareth. So what we learn is, ironically, is that the Son of Man concept and the claim of Yeshua that He is the Son of Man, it is that the Son of Man identifies Him as divine, not as human. Seems all backwards, doesn't it? To our way of thinking. This is why we have to understand the Jewish concepts. It is nearly universal. 
It is explained by Bible scholars that it was Christ's claim of being the divine Son of Man that led to his execution. That is, that the Jews were in no way ready to accept the idea of a, a human, even a human Messiah, also being divine. Therefore, this led them to accusing Jesus of blasphemy and asking Rome to execute him for them. Jewish history proves that construct to be incorrect. In fact, it was the highly revered Daniel who first introduced the concept of a divine human person that would rule over God's kingdom. So by Christ's day, this concept of a combo human divine Messiah, well, this was long established Jewish theology. Although not all Jews subscribed to it, many did. So let's be clear. This rather accepted notion that Christians invented the idea of a divine human savior or that the Jews were sent into a murderous rage over it and wanted Yeshua crucified for claiming it does injustice to reality. Rather, the image of Yeshua as a divine human Messiah that we find in the Gospels well spells out what a, what a major portion of Jewish society already believed and had for hundreds of years. See, there is a reason... Think about this for a second. There is a reason that thousands upon thousands of Jews were the first believers in Yeshua. As their divine human Messiah. They were expecting such a thing. And they be convinced, they became convinced, he was that Messiah. Such an expectation was already built in to Jewish tradition. In fact, because the Son of Man concept had existed and had been accepted and heavily debated within Jewish culture for hundreds of years, it's not only found in the Bible, it's also found in the book of First Enoch, which, was, which is really a group of five books. One of them called Similitudes, of Enoch. It is now fairly well agreed that this was written at or very likely before the time of Christ. Now I mentioned earlier in our lesson that other branches of Christianity can have different books in their Bibles than we do. But we of the West are typically not even aware of it the Ethiopian church as well as some of the Eastern Orthodox sub-branches include these five books of First Enoch in their Bibles. Listen to an ex excerpt taken from the similitudes of Enoch from chapter 44. It's fascinating. There I saw one who had a head of days, and his head was like white wool. And with him was another, whose face was like the appearance of a man. And his face was full of graciousness, like one of the holy angels. 
And I asked the angel of peace who went with me and showed me all these hidden things about that Son of Man. Who He was. Whence He was. Why He went with the head of days. And He answered me and He said to me, This is the Son of Man who has righteousness. Sounds amazingly similar to the Gospel accounts and to our passage in Revelation, doesn't it? As well it should. Because the Gospel accounts did not innovate a new concept in the Son of Man. Rather, the new believers in Yeshua just assigned a long-held Jewish concept to this carpenter's son from Nazareth. Also note that the similitudes of Enoch were written before the Gospels were written. And also likely before Yeshua even started his earthly ministry. So for John, the Son of Man, this concept was a old, familiar one. Well understood among his Jewish readers of the book of Revelation. Not particularly controversial. In fact, Yeshua's Son of Man claim simply verified what most Jews had been waiting for in their Messiah. But for the new Gentile believers, most wouldn't have had a clue about the Son of Man matter. And due to notoriously less than favorable mindsets towards anything Jewish, sometimes a subconscious mindset, and a reluctance to delve into the Old Testament or at least to re reflect upon those Bible books and their native Hebrew concept, the concept, uh, context rather, the, the concept of the divine human Son of Man seemed to be new. It seemed to be innovative with Jesus. Perhaps the very theological doctrine that could be used to separate Christ from his Jewishness and the church away from his Hebrew heritage. Now you all know better. We'll begin Revelation chapter 2 next week.